Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome or welcome back to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in our world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning to you on this Tuesday morning, Matt. Good morning, Mark. How's your day going? Good, good. Getting on the road here in a couple hours to uh, go visit a couple clients. So we'll be out of the office for the majority of the week here. So that's why we are recording on Tuesday, August 25th this morning. That is correct. So to start off, we'll take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on August 24th. And this data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index is up 4.89% for August and up 6.3% for the year. The Dow up 6.98% for the month and down 0.76% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index up 5.78% for the month and up 26.68% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 Index is up 6.02% for the month and down 5.7% for the year. And the Vanguard International ETF X United States up 4.67% for the month and down 3.75% for the year. Three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.12%, two-year Treasury yielding 0.15%, and the 10-year Treasury yield sitting at 0.64%. So I think the biggest news from this week, Matt, is that the FDA issued an emergency use authorization for a convalescent plasma to treat serious COVID-19 cases, uh, which is the rich or the excuse me, the antibody rich blood component from recovered COVID patients. So I saw that. We'll have to see um, what effect that has on the COVID numbers. But ultimately, it was a positive uh, for the markets the next day. Uh, so yesterday when that news came out. Yep, Absolutely. Um, the other big news is that the markets have pushed back to all-time highs uh, and have erased the losses seen in February and March from this year. So the S&P 500 index is back at all-time highs right now, which was kind of hard to believe back in February and March for most people. Absolutely. And again, go back to those podcasts we had at that time, and I think uh, gives you some perspective, right, on some of the data points we were sharing the other thing I'll throw out there is, as you were going over the returns year to date, it made me think about the news last night in regards to the uh, Dow Jones um, index, industrial average. Uh, for listeners, it has a component of 30 names. That's it, 30 names, and it's a price-weighted index. And um, So the higher the price, the higher the weight in the index. Correct. And um, you know, when you were going over the returns year to date, you said the Dow Jones is down 0.76%. S&P year to date is up 6.3. You know, it's very value driven index. They added three names, two of which are very big growth names, Amgen and Salesforce. So it looks like the Dow is trying to remain relevant. Um, and I think it's late. <laughs> yeah. But at least they're doing something. Yeah. Well, I think bringing people back to the basics is that, you know, these indexes are supposed to somewhat represent the U.S. economy, right? And I think, you know, 
as Exxon Mobil and some of these older companies have become more obsolete, you know, they're finally coming around to the fact that, hey, we need to we need to kick it in the gear and make this index more representative of the U.S. and our economy today rather than, you know, 20, 25 years ago. Yeah. And to define that a little further, like on the Exxon example, you know, it's not as if the company's going anywhere tomorrow, per se. It's just that they don't have the earnings growth that they had decades ago. And so when you have these high flying tech names like a Salesforce, you know, it's causes in certain periods like now the index to underperform, mm-hmm. right? Because it doesn't have the, that exposure to the, to the names. Right. And you and I've talked about in the podcast before, 24, 25% of the S&P 500 index is technology, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, do you have anything else on the uh, news Yeah, headlines? just one other thing that's kind of been going on behind the scenes. U.S.-China spat has continued to go on. Um, the U.S. government authorized sales of 60-plus fighter jets to Taiwan. That's a which, big deal, Mark. Yeah, which shouldn't make uh, China very happy. And um, the U.S. Commerce Department also is tightening restrictions on Huawei's access to U.S. technology and semiconductors. Um, Huawei, they make phones, Chinese phones. So, um, yeah, just more stuff going on. And and I, I think that's relevant because as we lead up to the election, you know, it would be, eh, let's say, normal for, you know, the Chinese to potentially take advantage of the political change. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, looks like uh, the current administration is, is trying to definitely keep their uh, their foot on the pedal in regards to into that. So that spat kind of, I guess, uh, continuing to slowly escalate is something we need to pay attention behind to. the scenes behind yeah. the scenes. We got to be paying attention to that. Yeah. So moving on to tweets, articles, and research from the week that caught our eyes. And I apologize uh, to everyone who's trying to find our show notes on our website right now. We're having some technical difficulties with our website. So I'm going to get these up as soon as I possibly can. But for right now, uh, we're just going to do the best we can just to walk you through these uh, charts that we're mentioning here uh, in this episode. But hoping by the end of the week, we can get last week's show notes up and then this week's as well. Excellent. So the first was a tweet from J.C. Parrots from All Star Charts, and this was back on August 18th, and he tweeted this. They tell me it's a bubble, and then I remind them of the multiple years of no progress. To me, this looks a lot more like a beginning than an end. And the chart that J.C. is referencing is the relative performance of technology stocks and specifically the QQQ ETF relative to long-term treasury bonds and in specific represented by TLT, which is the long-term U.S. treasury bond ETF. Mm -hmm. And for the past two years now, the NASDAQ has actually underperformed long-term bonds. So tech stocks have underperformed long-term bonds over the past two years, according to this chart. And now this chart is just breaking breaking out signaling that tech stocks are beginning to outperform long-term bonds. And in my opinion, that's pretty dang bullish. It is because this chart also indicates, Mark, that from 2016 to roughly 2018, you know, technology, i.e. NASDAQ was outperforming. And then you went through a two-year period where it was underperforming and is just now getting back above that high watermark from 2018. I I love that you brought this to listeners' attention because what are you hearing right now in the news, Mark? 
This is all, this is like the tech bubble in 99 and 2000 and 01. And you know, that we can't possibly go higher from here. Now, the point I want to make to listeners is this, after you said that going back to 99 and 00, which I went through a majority of those tech names were not making money, had horrific balance sheets. Okay. I would make a very general statement, in my opinion, I have to give those disclaimers, that now I would say it's opposite. I would say a majority of these tech names have very strong balance sheets. They're cash rich. And a lot of the ones that are doing really well right now actually make money. Mm -hmm. Shocker. Now, are those some high flyers, speculative names, Mark, that don't have good balance sheets that aren't making money, but their share prices are doing well? Yes. And I'm sure some of those listeners can think of some of those names. Right. But I will say it's not an apples to apples comparison when you look at it from that lens. Right. That's the point I want to make. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to try to get this up again as as quickly as possible. I think it'd be great for 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 listeners to see this. Yeah. Mark. But also I'll go on my Twitter and chart or like it so you can you can check that out. It's at Mark McEvely on Twitter. Um, so this is a really good chart to just give another piece of data that, you know, potentially we have a lot more room to move higher, especially in tech stocks. I love that you uh, highlighted this, Mark. So I don't want you to look at your screen for this one, Max. I want to play a game with you here. Okay. I didn't see it yet. <laughs> so I, I... my next, my next, uh, interesting, uh, tweet that I found was from Charlie Bellello on, uh, this was all the way back in July. So July 6th, okay. he tweeted the largest U S companies by market cap 1960 to today. So every 10 years ago, 60, 70, 80, 90, 2000, 2010, 2020. Oh boy. So I want to list off the top three largest companies by market capitalization, which is, again, the outstanding shares times the share price, mm -hmm. right, represents the largest market cap. Okay, Correct, sir. So I'm going to list off the top three companies from each year, 60, 70, 80, 90, 2000, 2010, 2020, I want to see if you can name one company that's in the top three. Of each decade. Of each decade. Oh, boy. So 1960. General Electric. No, you're close, though. They were five. Okay. So the top three companies in order in 1960, AT&T, General Motors, and DuPont. DuPont, number three. Yeah. Holy smokes. Yeah, crazy. All okay. right, 70. Um, too early yet for IBM. Um, I'm going to guess, I forget when the name Exxon came. So I'm going to throw out Standard Oil. You want one or two? One. Standard Oil. Nope. That's not in the, uh, not in the top 10, but Exxon was number five. And you said IBM, that was too early for them, but IBM was the largest company in 1970. You got to be kidding me. Yep. So in 70, it was IBM, AT&T, General Motors. Okay. 1980. Definitely IBM. Yep. IBM was number one. AT&T was number two. Exxon was number three. Okay. 1990. I'll go a different name. Definitely GE in the top three. Yep. GE was number two. So Exxon was number one. GE number two. IBM number three. 2000. All right. I'm going to go with something different. I'm going to go with Johnson and Johnson. No, they didn't even crack the top 10. That's unfortunate for them. 
So <laughs> slackers do better, J and J. Um, in 2000, Microsoft was the largest company, um, largest U.S. company by market cap. General Electric was number two, and Cisco was number three. And really? the interesting thing about Microsoft, Matt, was, and this just shows how meteoric this rise was from the 90s to 2000 of the tech space, Microsoft wasn't even in the top 10 in 1990. Yeah, I mean, I got to remind listeners that, you know, it was an absolute rocket ship from 96 to about the first quarter of 2000, barring a pause in 98 during the Asian financial crisis. And we're talking a pause of about four months-ish, and it was a complete rocket ship for tech. And so all of a sudden, you know, you see tech in general, Mark, doing so well over, let's say, the last five months, four months. Mm -hmm. And man, you haven't seen anything unless you compare that period. Yeah. And it's interesting because in 2000, there were, so it was Microsoft, Cisco, uh, Intel, Is AOL on there, IBM and AOL, five out of the 10 names uh, were tech names. AOL was the 10th biggest company. The reason AOL came to my mind is I saw someone tweet this yesterday and the comment was, it's been a long time since I've seen these tech names go up every day and it reminds me of AOL stock. Back in the late 90s, it felt like every day that sucker was going up. Mm -hmm. I remember for dial-up, Mark, where they charged you by the minute. Yeah. What a scam. Back I love in it. the days. Back in the days. Um, All right, so what about 2010? 2010. All right, I got to get creative because it's right after 08 and 09. Industrials were starting to falter. I'm going to say Intel. No, they didn't even crack the top 10. Well, whoa. ExxonMobil regained its dominance status as number one largest company in the U.S. So ExxonMobil, then Microsoft, then Walmart. So Exxon, Walmart? Yeah. Yeah, it was. And then uh, number four was Apple. So that's interesting. So in 1990 and 2010, Exxon were the largest companies separated by a decent amount of time. Wow. 2020. I think this you can guess this one. It's pretty easy. Yep. Apple. Yep. Can you guess the top three? Yeah, probably. I would say Apple, Microsoft. The third one's going to be tough. Um, Amazon. Bang, bang. Oh, in a row. Bang, bang. <laughs> three in a row. Apple, Microsoft, and Amazon. <laughs> and in 2020, followed by number four, Facebook, or excuse me, number four, Google, five, Facebook, Six Berkshire Hathaway, seven Visa, eight Johnson and Johnson, nine Walmart, and ten Mastercard. Just look at those top ten now, and look at where they were, you know, thirty years ago. Mm -hmm. And it just tells you, and you've brought this point up multiple times on this podcast, Mark, the evolution of technology. Where back in the nineties, it was um, not as prevalent uh, in our daily lives. And, you know, going through COVID, it just shows you how dependent we are on it. Mm -hmm. So it's no surprise that in the, in the environment of COVID, you know, how well tech has done in general, represented by the NASDAQ right now, compared to the other two major indices you quote, the S&P and the Dow. Yeah. Yeah. And a good book that kind of outlines how these cycles happen, I think it's called The Big Four or The Four. I can't remember who wrote it, but I read it a couple of years ago and it was about Facebook, Apple, uh, Amazon and 
Microsoft. Microsoft, maybe. Yeah. Or Google. Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Google, Microsoft. One of the four of those five companies. And it just talks about their evolution and that eventually, you know, the Apples, the Amazons, the Microsofts, the Googles, the Facebook. In the top 10. They'll get knocked off eventually. At some point. No one knows when it's going to happen. It takes longer and shorter for different companies. But at some point, I could tell you with relative certainty from my perspective that, you know, Microsoft and Apple won't be the two largest companies in three or four decades. They might be, but I think there's a good chance that... It, 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 the numbers are against them. Right. Exactly. Good, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Mark. So I'm glad you brought that up. That was a good piece. Yeah. And once the show notes are up near the end of the week, cool. I would really encourage listeners to check it out. And even though you can't do it right now, you go to www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Hover over the podcast tab and you'll see the link for the show notes. Yeah. And I mean, just look back in the 60s, 70s and 80s. You have names like Xerox, Eastman Kodak. Oh, boy. Uh, Sears Roebuck. Yep. Sears, Texaco. Yeah, crazy, crazy stuff. Um, The last thing that I wanted to mention today was from Bespoke Investment Group. And this was a piece they did on Yale's crash confidence reading. And this was back on August 18th. So the Yale International Center for Finance, Matt, has been continuously running a series of investor sentiment surveys on a monthly basis since the late 90s. This is interesting. And one of the most intriguing ones is their crash confidence reading, which gauges how worried investors are about a stock market crash in the next six months. Okay. So they posted this chart, which again, we will put on our show notes once we are able to do so, um, that compares the crash confidence reading for individual investors to the S&P 500. So in the late Uh, In late 2008 and early 2009 lows, seen for the crash confidence reading came during the late innings of the financial crisis. So people were expecting, you know, a stock market crash within the next six months, right at the lows of the market in 08 or 09. Got it. And the ultimate low for the crash confidence reading came in April of 2009, which was one month after the S&P 500 made its financial crisis low. So I remember April 09 actually vividly. It was a phenomenal month for me. Yeah. I remember that month. You couldn't go wrong. You couldn't go wrong. Right. You could buy anything. You could buy anything. Yeah. Keep going. Sorry, I apologize. No, you're fine. I'm reminiscing. Um, this uh, And this time around, the crash confidence reading first started to dip after the stock market crashed in March, but has continued to fall even lower and lower as stocks have rebounded. This is an interesting chart, Mark. So the thing that I want to point out here, and I mean, this is just going back to April of 99, is that when individual investors are extremely bearish on the market... Again, it's my opinion that a lot of the times it might be smart to take the opposite side of that trade. Based upon um, this chart, I would uh, say that statement's justified. Yeah. So when people are expecting the worst, I think it's driven by their experience of crappy times that they just had in the past couple months. And, you know, we mentioned before, it's hard to look past the next week or the next month, but people are the most bearish when things are at their worst, yep. I think, and they're not looking forward. So again, if this plays out like it did in 2008 and 2009, it's a pretty a bullish indicator that I would say that there, again, is still room to move higher in the markets. 
Yeah, and just to throw out two comments, one, they showed another kind of uh, dip in um, April of 2011, and the market continued to rally for multiple years thereafter. Mm-hmm. And then just as a reminder for listeners, you know, Mark and I are going to pick data points that we think are relative to give perspective on the market. Is this the sole data point that you should utilize part of your investment strategy? Of course not. But this is a very interesting chart that I think gives the other side of it. Because right now, if you were to go to a lot of the popular media sites, right, in the, the financial sites, you're going to see a lot of these doom and gloom articles, right? And it's like, you know, a broke clock is going to be right twice a day, mm-hmm. right? And it's just when this type of environment, seeing a counter data point like this, Mark, I think is very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because we both had this one on our list for notes. Uh, so that caught both of our eyes. Love so, that. Uh, I'll turn it over to you. I got two this week. So the first is an e-commerce update for you listeners. This is really, really interesting. Okay. So um, it's a chart that we're going to put up on our show notes. It shows the overall market share of e-commerce sales versus total retail sales in the U.S. Okay. So to give you some perspective, uh, back in 2000, first quarter of 2000, online sales represented 0.8% of total U.S. sales mark. Okay. Fast forward to now, second quarter 2020, and this data is from the U.S. Census Bureau, we're up to 15%, right? So, you know, Capitol Hill just had Amazon up there along with a couple other companies about antitrust. And um, some of the lawmakers were drilling Bezos. And they're like, you're completely dominating. You're taking over everything. Bezos just waited for his moment. And he goes, I want to remind you, it was either congressman or senator, we make up 4% of total U.S. sales. Mm-hmm. 4%. And uh, we have competitors like Walmart that do actually more retail sales than we do. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of alluded to, but didn't directly say it. Why am I up here and they're not here with me? Right. It's a valid point. So I know that we feel as we see all these Amazon trucks and UPS trucks, FedEx, USPS, Still, we're only at 15% penetration of total online sales as total retail sales in the U.S. I I thought it was very interesting. Yeah, and I think that's just one of those things that's going to get pushed even higher uh, sooner just because of COVID and everything going on. Yeah, in essence, this trend just got pushed to where we're at now. Yeah, and this just is another data point that backs up that our economy is evolving to more tech-oriented companies. And this is an example of that, I think. And I don't think this trend is going away anytime soon. I know we mentioned it several times on the podcast before, but this is just another, you know, data point, in my opinion, why, you know, tech has outperformed the past eight months um, against the broader market, uh, i.e. the S&P 500. And, you know, I I just long term, I don't I don't see this trend slowing down. I agree. I agree. So um, I got one last thing I'd like to share with our listeners, Mark. This is an article from uh, Advisor Perspectives. It's kind of a more of a what I would call an industry uh, website rather than like a retail uh, investor uh, financial site. And they had a piece and it was called America's ETF market is bigger than ever as traders dump mutuals, i.e. mutual funds. And the date of this article, Mark, was August 4th. Okay. And before I continue, will you take a second and explain to listeners the general difference 
between an exchange-traded fund and a mutual fund? Yeah, so exchange-traded funds, you can trade throughout the day just like a stock, right? Mm -hmm. So if you bought the SPY, which is designed to track the S&P 500 index, you can buy it when the market opens at 930 and sell it in between then and when the market closes at 4. Mutual funds, on the other hand, you can only buy at the end of the day. So there's no intraday trading with mutual funds. And I'm not making a blanket statement for all ETFs, but you know, I think it's a general consensus that exchange-traded funds are cheaper than most mutual funds. And people are looking for ways to invest at a lower cost. So I think that's also driving the popularity of ETFs. Um, and liquidity is easier. Uh, people can trade in and out of this stuff a lot easier. So its rise in popularity, I think, is really going to rival the mutual fund industry if it hasn't already going forward. Yeah, so the, the, I, that you just said it perfectly. I have nothing to add. Uh, what I'll say from the article is that um, it's mentioned, and again, this date is from August 4th, so it is a couple of weeks old. Uh, it says, in the first half of 2020, exchange-traded funds recorded $248 billion of net inflows. And the article quotes Bloomberg for that data mark. And then in comparison, it quotes that mutual funds um, had outflows of $34 billion during that same time period, again, according to Bloomberg. So look at that. I mean, that, that trend is, uh, is, is, is pretty dramatic, Mark. Yeah, and I think it's just, you know, this fee compression environment that we're in is everyone's wants to, number one, it seems like trade more and trade at a lower cost. Yeah, no one wants the four o'clock price per se at this time, right? Right. Kind of feels that way. Right. Especially, well, when you have, you know, moves like we did intraday back in February and March of five, six, seven, eight percent. That's right. <laughs> um, you know, people are impatient. They want instant gratification. The other thing I'll throw out there is, you know, listeners, do your research on these exchange traded funds. There are there are some cautionary tales. I'll give you an example. On some of the smaller exchange traded funds, the spread between what you can buy it for and what you can sell it for at times can get pretty wide. So some of the more popular ones don't seem to kind of have that bid ask spread as wide. But it's not just a slam dunk listeners that, oh, well, I heard this and I'm just going to do exchange traded funds now. Mm -hmm. You know, you need if you're doing this on your own, you're not using a professional. Please, please do your due diligence. Can you explain that really quick? The, the bid and ask spread and what you buy it for and what you can sell it for? Yes. So let's take a fictitious example of a stock ETF. And let's say it's a small one. So it doesn't trade a lot. And let's say right now the last trade was at twenty five dollars. It's not uncommon for some of these smaller exchange traded funds listeners where you could sit there and sell it for say 24.80 but you'd have to pay 25.20 to buy it. That's a 40 cent spread, which is very wide, okay? Whereas if it's a more popular and heavily traded exchange traded fund, I think the chances of that spread being uh, a lot um, less is going to be dramatic. So mm. an example would be 25. Your bid ask spread might be 24.99 by 25.01. Right. So just be careful in, in some of these more uh, niche or smaller exchange traded funds um, uh, and what you end up, how you put that order in the system. Right. So just want to throw that out there. Yep. Cautionary comment um oops. so moving on to the financial planning topic of the week this is a second week in a row where um the topic comes from uh blair duquesne 
uh, in one of her blog posts. So I really like the stuff that she puts out there. And, I, and this one caught my eye a couple weeks back. Uh, and this one's titled uh, The Worst Asset to Leave Behind. And this talks about some things people can think about when buying an annuity and how that would affect their beneficiaries and their beneficiaries' tax consequences once the owner of the annuity passes away. So there are a lot of nuances with annuities, and people should fully understand every aspect of the product before buying it. Um, And that could save people a lot of headaches down the road rather than just going in, diving in headfirst and buying something that you don't understand. Correct. And I'm not recommending or recommending against annuities. I'm just pointing out some nuances, I guess, with products and certain types of annuities in this article. That's fair. um, So I guess to start, so for those of you who are not aware, if you inherit um, an after-tax asset, like a brokerage account, a trust, real estate, you know, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs, you get a stepped-up cost basis as of the date of death of the original owner. How about we give them an example of that, Mark? Yeah. So say, um, you know, I have a $100,000 after-tax brokerage account, and you're my beneficiary of it. Thank you, by the way. (laughs) You're welcome. And so I invest $100,000 today. Five years down the road, that grows to $175,000. Okay. Five years down the road, I die. That money is left to Matt, and Matt's cost basis is not $100,000, it's $175,000. Because that's what it was worth when you passed. When I passed. So you inherit the money with no capital gains liability. So I could liquidate the account and And not not have to pay any tax. Theoretically, if you sold that money on the day I died and there were no gains during that day, you could sell that money at and have zero tax consequences. Correct, sir. Okay, yes. so that's uh, that's stepped up cost basis. And listeners, that, that accounts the same thing with houses, right? Mm-hmm. Primary residence, investment properties, uh, assuming it's after tax money, yeah. right? Yeah, so There's that's a, a huge tax break because you know seventy five thousand dollars in capital gains. That's not a small amount. No, sir. Um, so that is one of the benefits of inheriting an after tax account or property that you know that cost basis gets stepped up. And you take over with no, with virtually zero tax liability when the original owner dies. Um, so I'm just going through my notes. Sorry, and we just mentioned everything I had written. Oh, I'm sorry. No, you're no, you're fine. Well, I I know with an annuity, yeah, it doesn't work that way. Well, yeah, exactly. So it's not that's not the case with all assets, right? So like retirement accounts, they don't fall under this stepped up cost basis, right? So regular IRAs. That doesn't happen with that. We've talked several times about how the transfer to beneficiaries work with retirement accounts. So if people want to hear that, they can go back and listen through our our catalog for that. Yeah, there'll be the Secure Act one where we talk about the difference in how inherited IRAs work now. Yeah. And this stepped up cost basis is not true for non-qualified variable annuities. Um, So Blair had a family member, uh, tell her that she was disappointed she had to pay tax on an inheritance last year. And Blair says, knowing that her state has no estate tax and the federal estate tax doesn't kick in until $11.58 million, I quipped that she should not have paid any taxes. As we continued the conversation, 
I learned that she had inherited a non-qualified variable annuity. Aha, I realized immediately what had happened. And this is what happened. Perk up listeners, this is important. A non-spouse beneficiary of an annuity has few options for managing the taxes owed on an inherited annuity. The beneficiary is not eligible for a step up in cost basis as they would be when inheriting investments outside of an annuity. There are only two options available to the heir. One, take a lump sum distribution in the year that the owner died and owe tax on the gains of the annuity. At ordinary income. Yep. Take the distributions over a five-year period. So obviously the better option would have been to take distributions over a five-year period to take or distribute, uh, diversify the tax liability over five years instead of taking the hit all in one year. And throwing you most likely in the highest tax bracket. Yep. So as you said, both options result in ordinary income taxed to the beneficiary. The beneficiary won't owe tax on every dollar, only the difference between the original investment and today's value. Ordinary income tax rates are higher than the more preferable capital gains rates applied to inherited investments outside of an annuity. So if the deceased annuitant had already begun annuity payments, the beneficiary will be required to continue those annual payments based on the schedule and death benefit option chosen by the deceased. So from a tax perspective, I would say, Matt, non-qualified annuities are not the most efficient products for beneficiaries that are inheriting them. I would absolutely agree with that statement. I would absolutely agree. So, yeah, go ahead. I'd like to take it one step farther, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. So I would recommend that if you are listening to this podcast and you have one of these types of investment vehicles, it could make sense to work with your trusted advisor and your tax professional. Because if your beneficiaries are in a higher tax bracket, let's say you have some kids and they're doing well in life, it might make sense for you to start actually drawing down that annuity at your lower tax rate if that's the case, and start paying that tax, because guess what? Someone's going to pay the piper. Mm -hmm. And if your kids are in a higher tax bracket and they're doing well in life, you could be end up passing less to the next generation. Right. And another option is that you can start drawing down that annuity and using the annuity income to buy like a a life insurance policy that would give your beneficiary or your kids tax-free a tax-free lump sum in the event that you die. I agree. And the other, uh, this is a very important point I'm going to make next. Withdrawals from these types of annuities is called last in first out accounting. Okay. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to use your example of 100,000 as an initial uh, contribution uh, into a non-qualified after-tax annuity, variable annuity. And let's say it grows to 175,000. And let's say that the owner is still alive and they want to take $25,000 out. Guess what, listeners? The $25,000 that comes out first is all cream, meaning it's all your gains and is 100% taxed at ordinary income. Mm -hmm. That's a very important point. So again, any withdrawal you take, you have to pay taxes on the gains first. Right. Anything else you want to add there? No, no, just that, you know, and again, I don't want to sound like we're talking horrible about annuities. I just want to point some of these things out because for some people in some situations, an annuity might be a really good product for them. But I think if you're trying, if one of your goals 
or one of your values are to leave money to the next generation, I just think there's better options out there. And again, what you're what you're mentioning is, hey, you just need to be educated about these items because more often than not, people are unaware of some of the key points that we just made. Mm -hmm. And I will just mimic what you said. There are instances where these things make sense. However, there are instances where that's not the case. And I think just educating people with this piece is one that down the road we're going to reference. Right. Hey, remember Podcast 60? We talked about some of the nuances with annuities. You might want to reference that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. Well, I think that's all that I had for this week, Matt. Is there anything else you want to mention before we leave it here for the week? Uh, no, sir. Nope. So we will be back next week on our normal schedule, either Wednesday or Thursday. And uh, we thank everyone for tuning in and listening to the 60th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. We hope you all have a great rest of the week and enjoy your weekend. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.